This is, of course, the longest chapter in the Bible. Now, many times, I don't know if you have ever done this, but you come up and you're reading your Bible, and sometimes you read your Bible one chapter at a time. And you come to Psalm 119, you go, oh, 176 verses. Actually, Psalm 119 is longer than some of the other books of the Bible in their entirety. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I like the Bible reading schedule we pass out for the church, because it divides Psalm 119 into nice little bite-sized uh, 16 verses. You read through two passages here. But how many of you have ever gotten tired reading through Psalm 119? Just be honest for a minute. I have on occasion. You just sit there and you go, oh, my, when am I ever going to get through this song? Well, there are reasons why it's so long. And the first thing I want to tell you is we don't know what they are. I have read so much conjecture on Psalm 119 that if I have to read any more people's guesses about Psalm 119, uh, I think I'm going to have to do something disgusting that I won't describe. But, uh, I mean, it just I'm just right up to here. I am sick of everybody's thoughts on why possibly this could be this way. What we do know is uh, you can call them stanzas if you would like. You could call them strophes. Uh, you could call it octuplets or whatever you would like to call. There are 22 sets of eight verses. There is one set of eight verses for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, most of, I mean, the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are all consonants. Hebrew is what we call a consonantal language. If the Hebrew were be print it out before you, and you could read it, you would not see any vowels printed in the text. There are little tiny dots underneath the text, and they tell you which vowel sounds to put in between the consonants. Hebrew is not the simplest language in the world to read. Uh, Just a little aside here. You will often, if you listen to um, um, preachers on the radio and and uh, Christian radio and Christian TV, you will often hear preachers refer to the Greek word used in our text is da 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 da, da and, and it means this, and it's the history of this word. If you listen to those guys, how many of them say the Hebrew word in the text is? Not very many. You want me to tell you why? It takes a lot of work to learn Hebrew. Now, are the guys that know Greek any smarter than the people who don't? Absolutely not. What you need to do is you need to learn to read the words that are in your Bible and understand what they say. Now, I will tell you this. If we could read this in the Hebrew, the first word of every verse starts 
with the same letter as the beginning of the strophe. And so there is lots of neat little things there that would be in the Hebrew, but I want you to understand something. The message is not lost or impugned by bringing it into the English. The message is still there. Now, wouldn't it be neat if you could pick up your Bible and verses 1 through 8, all the letters were A. And three, uh, nine, through, uh, 9 through 16, every verse began with a B. And 17, the next one, every verse began with a word that began with a G. Now, there are many different types of poetry. Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. English poetry, we like to rhyme. It's all about the sound. Hebrew poetry is all about the thoughts. In Hebrew poetry, it will either be thought one, thought A builds thought B, or thought B builds thought A, or... They are contrasted one against the other. The whole idea is to teach you something. Poetry was meant to teach Hebrew poetry. And uh, point three was this psalm was actually sung by the Hebrew people. How they did that is a secret that has been lost in antiquity. Someone actually... Uh, claimed uh, several years ago, and I, I have not done much research on it, uh, that the Hebrew vowel markings and some of the different markings in the Masoretic text actually give musical notation. And they went through and they translated this musical notation. And it was the weirdest sounding thing you ever heard. Um I really, now now maybe I just need to get my weird meter fixed and understand that that was, but it had no real melody. It just went up and down and all around and it was, it just didn't, it didn't make sense. If it was truly God's melody, I believe it would draw us closer to the text. Amen. And. It's just been lost. No one knows where it is, how they did it. And so you know what you and I are going to be have to be content until we get to heaven? Just quoting it. You really want the poetry of God's Word to work in your heart. You're going to have to memorize it. You're going to have to internalize it. It takes more than just learning the words. This is not a story. When you read through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, uh, I'll tell you what you can. When you get to the story parts, how many of you have ever done? I mean, you can just burn through those pages because I mean, you're reading what's happening. You're not having to think. But as we go through these first two verses, which are a summary of the entire psalm. Um, we may or may not get through them all, but we're going to find out that 
What we're really doing is just kind of scratching the surface here. The meanings and the applications are something that you're going to have to spend some time at home working on. Psalm 119, you can say what you want, but it was and is, the the proper English word is the treatise on God's Word. There is more discussed, more application made, more notations about God's Word in Psalm 119 than any other single place in the Bible. You want to understand God's Word? Go Psalm 119. It's going to tell you everything you need to know about the very words of God. But God's words are not just meant for intellectual stimulation, are they? They're meant to be lived. Now, we'll come into ten separate Hebrew words that mean God's words. Those are translated into nine different English words. Uh, People go to verses 122 and 132, and we're just going to skip ahead here. Several months, I'm sure, but let's go to verse 122. And it says, Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. And and people say, listen, this is one of the two verses that doesn't match all of the rest of these words, these verses in this poem talking about the Word of God. But let's take just a moment. Now, it says, be surety. Now, that word surety is making a contract. That means that there is a guarantee of safety. Uh, There is a connection here. There is is more than just safety. And uh, words, there, there's an actual apparatus here. There is a way to make sure that you are kept safe. That's what the idea of surety is. And it says, be surety for thy servant for good. Now, the word good there is the only way we can have surety from God. He's saying, be surety for thy servant for good. That's referring to the word of God right there. That is God's apparatus. That is God's foundation for good in your life is the word of God. Now, we'll explain that more fully later and make sure that I'm not confusing you more. But let not the proud oppress me. What is the answer to the proud? Hiding in God's Word. So these verses that they claim that God's Word is not specifically mentioned is still referring to and talking about how God's Word is going to act in our life. The other one is 132, and it says, Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Now, they tell us that that phrase, uses to do, is actually one of the ten Hebrew words denoting the laws of God. 
And so they say, why would that be translated as thou usest to do instead of as the word of God says? And it's simply just a different way of putting it. How do you know what got used to do? Uh, there's only one way. You've got to read it in here now, isn't it? And so every verse in Psalm 119 talks to us about God's Word and how it ought to apply and how it ought to be lived in our life. I want to challenge you that we can trust the words that are in this book called the Bible. Uh, we're not going to take time to reteach where our Bible came from, all right? Uh, but what we are going to do is just start on the assumption that God's Word is contained word for word in English, what He gave the writer of this psalm in Hebrew. For you and I to use today. We're not going to argue about the words and the order and whether they belong in the text or not because God gave us his word and he promised to preserve and to keep his word and there is more than ample evidence from that. There is more to learn in this psalm than we can possibly imagine and I hope I can Get out of the boring stuff here and whet your appetite just a little bit for some of the things that we're going to find here. But this psalm was not written to weary you. How am I going to get through Psalm 119? No, this psalm was written to give you a complete understanding of the Word of God. And I want, I want you to realize something. 176 verses. And you've got to pay attention to every one. Or you're going to miss something about God's words. Does that give you just a little idea of the vastness of the subject of which we are to, about to explore? In fact, Mr. Spurgeon, I read the introduction to his commentary on this psalm, and he said, I was afraid to start Psalm 119. He said it was all of the other psalms, and, and he wrote literally thousands of pages. On, it's called The Treasury of David. Uh, you can get that at CBD. You can get it in books online. Uh, you want a great commentary on the book of Psalms? Spurgeon is about the best. If you can read 700 pages on Psalm 119. I, I mean, it is, it is long, and he puts in a lot of information there. But what the writer is trying to tell us, God's Word is an inexhaustible subject. It's huge. It's beyond the normal realms of your memory and your ability to comprehend. We do not venerate God's Word by putting it on a shelf and worshiping the pages in the leather. We do not venerate God's Word by talking about how great it is. We venerate God's Word, the greatest and the simplest way, by living the pages. 
by letting this book make your decisions for you. There's a lot. There's a lot that goes on in this world. And uh, I like it, science, falsely so-called, uh, the wisdom of man is, the, is foolishness with God. And, uh, you know, just one illustration. I was listening to the radio today. It said General Motors ought, might, might ought to be rewritten uh, as government motors. And since the government took over and bailed out GM at how many, how many hundred billion dollars have they put into it? Uh, it only lost four hundred billion dollars last quarter. Good job for our government. Uh, and the commentator asked, what is the government doing that isn't losing us money? Scary thought. And yet, here's the point I'm trying to make. A year ago... When this administration came into being, they were touted as the smartest men in all of history. How many of you remember that? I mean, nobody is as smart as our president, as Mr. Geithner, as Mr. Holder, as Mr. as Mrs. Secretary of State and I mean, these are the smartest people in the world. I want I want you to understand something. We're not here just trying to criticize politics. What we are criticizing is the haughty, prideful spirit of men that exalt themselves in their intellects. And we want to take that and compare that to the simplicity that's in this psalm. And yet the vast enormity, the depth of the phrases that are used, the meaning How difficult is it going to be to live this psalm? If you could think of nothing else till the day Jesus called you home than Psalm 119, let me tell you something. If you lived to be 500 years old, you still wouldn't have it all. And what I want us to do is ask God. In fact, let's just have a word of prayer here. Dear Heavenly Father, we we ask you, uh, I ask for myself and for each one here that you would allow us as we investigate these words not to be caught up in ancillary things, but Lord, that we would let the message of these words change our lives. We ask that you would help us keep it real and practical and live it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, what I'm hoping to do tonight is the first two verses. And the reason why I want to try to do two verses is because they're extremely connected here. Uh, In verse 1 of Psalm 119, it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him. With the whole heart. Verse 3 is connected. We're probably not going to get there tonight. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. 
then shall I not be ashamed. When I have respect unto all thy commandments, I will praise thee with the uprightness of heart. When I shall have learned thy righteous judgments, I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. Now, here the writer, and most people believe it was David, and if I say David other than the writer, it's because that's probably the best answer, but it, it could have also been Daniel could have written this. It's possible that it might have even been Solomon. We, we do not know. But he said, blessed are the undefiled in the way. Now, the word blessed, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are God's gifts. You want blessing in your life. Now, I want you to understand, and, and this is in your outline here, just to remind us when we look at this again, this verse is not a command for you to attempt to be undefiled in the way. It is a statement of fact. It says here that the man or the person, it just said, blessed are the undefiled. Now, that word undefiled is the same word that is used to describe the sacrificial lamb without blemish. It is just simply means without defilement. We go back, the word defile, a person is defiled, according to the Old Testament law, what are they? Unclean. How do you get unclean? Contact with a dead body? Any kind of running sore? Any kind of um, contact with a person that has some kind of disease? Touching certain types of animals, uh, you touch a dog, you you uh, you have uh, some wild animal run by and die in the front yard, and you got to tie a rope to it and drag it out and get rid of it. Touching that animal makes you unclean. If you were a doctor, guess what? You were continually unclean if you were going to help heal someone else and. As we look at that, it says, blessed are the undefiled. Now, the idea of being undefiled is being clean. Now, we often ask this question, how many of you have sinned since Sunday? Raise your hand. Okay. If you, if you couldn't raise your hand, either you're asleep like Philip and Esther... Leave me alone. Uh, if you're totally awake and in control and you have not sinned since Sunday, I would check your pulse, all right? Um, but how do we get undefiled in the way? That's where the blessing are. That's where we need to be. The thought here is not that you can work at becoming undefiled, but that you should be a state of being. That's what the R word means. It's an equality here 
As a Christian, you should live undefiled. Now, that's a scary thought. We say that's impossible. But what does the writer of Hebrews chapter 6? Let us move on unto what? Does anybody remember the word? Perfection. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. You think the word perfection would describe undefiled? I think it would be a good. Uh, The idea of being that sacrifice without spot, without blemish. Romans chapter 12, do you remember those verses? Wherefore, I beseech, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Does that sound like undefiled? See, it's not unattainable. But it doesn't happen by accident. We make excuses for allowing sin in our lives. Oh, me? And when we make these excuses, your life still may be characterized as being in the way. But is it undefiled in the way? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that standeth not in the way of sinners. You know, sometimes we as Christians live our life. If we could pretend that this barrier here, this walled pulpit is God's law. This is how we spend our life, and hopefully this won't break loose, but we, we spend it like this. I know God's law is here. I'm safe. I'm standing. Ooh, wow. I'm glad I don't live like that. Yeah. Whoa. Maybe, maybe I'll be looking at that. Just one more. Whoa. Do you get the point I'm trying to illustrate here? In the way, defiled. Blessed are the undefiled. In the way. How many of you remember the story of the Queen's carriage driver? We've used that a couple of times. She was searching for someone to drive the royal carriage. And so, the finalists were sorted out by the different men that she had under her. And and finally, she took the last three up to the top of this very dangerous and mountainous road. And she said, I have one last question. If you were to be chosen as the driver of my royal person, How close to the edge of the precipice would you bring my carriage and feel perfectly safe in guarding my person? Well, the first driver looked at the carriage and looked at the queen, looked at the road and looked down into the valley. 
said, Your Royal Highness, I believe that I could come within one foot of the edge of the road and I would have no fear of any harm coming to your royal person. Well, what's the next guy going to say? Well, he says it. Six inches. How many people remember what the last guy said? Not one. He said, Your Majesty, with your person in the carriage, it would be my duty to stay as far away from the edge as possible. Undefiled in the way. Not. (gasps) Seeing how close to the edge I can get. The blessings. You say, but that's too strict. I can't, you can't live in the real world. Oh, wait a minute. Did not David live in the real world? What if Daniel was the author? I mean, if I have a personal favorite, could you imagine someone like Daniel without access to complete copies of the Word of God, having sat down under the influence of the Holy Spirit and wrote this treatise on how the Word of God ought to be? How many remember where Daniel lived? The first 60, the first 10, 12 years of his life, he lived in Jerusalem as a prince being trained in the law of God. The next 60 or so years of his life, he lived in the city of Babylon and he had such righteous people to work for as Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar. And then he worked for Cyrus and Darius, different kings of Persia. I mean, actually it was Darius first and then Cyrus, but he didn't live in a very righteous land now, did he? And yet, what did they say about Daniel? We can't accuse him of doing any wrong unless we make it against the law to worship his God. Sounds like undefiled in a way now, doesn't it? You know, that's where God wants us to be. He doesn't want us making excuses. Now, the next phrase builds upon this one. It says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, what it's doing here is it's defining this force. It's it's giving us a, a greater insight. If you want to know what the way is, read the law of the Lord. See what the Bible says. And someone may be thinking, well, the Bible says we're supposed to take our sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. Why aren't we doing that today? Well, how many of you are here for our study on dispensationalism? We dealt with that there. Uh, But the simple truth of the matter is God's word, all of his word is meant to teach us what being undefiled is. This idea of being undefiled means that I'm not bringing with me 
the stench of the world. Just before we left for the home missions conference in Heartland, that was the first week, first full week in the second full week of January. We left on the 10th. Uh, Saturday night before church, we had the sewer line, main sewer line to the church back up. Or was it Friday night? I can't remember. Friday night. My wife remembers these things. But the reason I bring this up is we we had quite a mess to clean up in the basement trying to unplug the sewer line, as you could imagine. And uh, all these weeks later... Uh, Andrew brings the big vacuum up here to start cleaning things, and he opens the vacuum to empty it. I said, son, did you clean that vacuum? Because I smell sewer smells. And he said, Dad, I washed it with Lysol. I, I scrubbed it. I rinsed it. I did it over and over again. But you know, some of that stuff just gets in there. And you can't get it out. You might look good. But if you've been hanging over the fence, you might not smell so good. By the way, what, does God, what sense does God use when he talks about our prayers? It's the incense on the altar. It's smell. And I promise you, God's smeller is in perfect tune. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. It says, who walk in the law of the Lord. The only way you can be undefiled in the way is you've got to be in the way uh, Anybody remember John 14, 6? I am what? The way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living Word of God. When we violate His words, who else do we violate? We violate the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who walk in the law of the Lord. And by the way, how do we know what is defiled and what isn't defiled, what is wrong and what isn't wrong? How many of you have heard one of my most hated statements of all time? That's your truth. Let me tell you, if you can have it, it's not truth. Truth does not belong to an individual. See, what they've done is they've cunningly redefined the word truth. What they ought to be saying is, this is what I believe to be truth, and it contradicts what you believe to be truth. Therefore, it's just a matter of opinion. Now, that's the thought process behind it. But let me ask you a question. When it comes to God, is it just a matter of opinion, my friend? No, because I am the way. What's the next one? The truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And he is the life. If you want the blessings, 
You have to let Jesus Christ determine what is good and what is not good. What is clean and what is not clean. What is righteousness and what is evil. Jesus is the one who determines that. And by the way, the Word of God is very clear on almost any subject you would like to investigate on as to what is righteous and what is not. But here's what has happened over the years. If we go back, and let's just take American history. I'm most familiar with that, and most of you here would be. Let's go back to the 1920s. You know that if, ladies, you would be arrested, arrested, handcuffs, taken to prison for exposing your elbows or your ankles at Jones Beach. That was the law. They had police officers out there. They had lifeguards, and one of the things that the lifeguards were doing was if they saw ankles or elbows, you were carted off unceremonious. You did not get read your Miranda rights. Uh, you were just carted off the beach. And if you persisted, they put you in jail. Now, you can say, Pastor, that's ridiculous. Well, that was society's standard. And you know where the church was? Just a little bit behind. Now, I'm not going to describe to you the standard that is acceptable at Jones Beach today because this is a church service. And it's a mixed company. I wouldn't talk that way. But it's, it's uh, beyond what would be called decent or moral in anybody's book. But where's the church? Well, the world moved from ankles and elbows to unspeakable level. So where did church come? Wait a minute, that's too big of a gap. We've got to relate to our world in which we live. So the church now just moves right up. We're, We're still better than the world. And it happens in our minds with music, with movies, with everything that we do, are we letting the world determine what undefiled in the way is and saying, God, I'm doing the best I can. You just have to put up with it. Or are we willing to just separate ourselves from this scene completely? Immerse ourselves in the law of God and ask God. What is defiled and what is undefiled? God, what stinks to you? What in my life is bringing that aroma of the world before your holy nostrils and insulting you as God? Somebody says, that's radical. Well, the only reason it's radical is because it is so far removed from what we are conditioned. Why can we not allow God's Word to set the standard? That's scary. 
How do we know you're not Jim Jones trying to control our thoughts? Well, it's real easy. I'm not telling you what Pete Montoro thinks. I'm not giving you a list. If you're going to be a member of this church, we don't have a dress code here. People think we do. I've had people come in and they say, I'm uncomfortable because when I come in, I'm not dressed like everybody else. That's okay. We wear the best that we can. And I'll tell you what, we've done this on many occasions. Don't let your clothes stop you from coming to church. Amen? If it's that big of an issue, we'll go buy you some clothes. Remember, one guy said, I want to be an usher, but I don't have a suit. and I don't have... We went out and bought him a suit. Now, it wasn't Bergen District $800 suit on discount for $600. Uh, it was Steinway Street, uh, where I buy mine and where most of us buy ours. But it was still a suit and it looked nice. Listen. What we want is we want to be undefiled in the way. And this means you got to examine who and what you are. Am I bringing the aromas of the world with me into my worship with Christ? Now, we're not going to get to verse 2. It says, blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek after him with the whole heart. That really defines this idea of being undefiled in the way. And Lord willing, next Thursday night, we'll pick up right there. I'm I'm trying. I could go till 930. Uh, I want to be careful with our time. And... What I, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this word honestly, carefully. I want you to think about it. And no, we're not trying to start some new cult here. No, not at all. What our church has been doing will lead you in this direction. Amen? The preaching that has been here 17 years is going to lead you into that direction. That's what the goal of it is. But each person must individually make a choice. What does it mean to be undefiled in the way? Well, it means to be without the smells, the stains, the defilement of this world. I don't measure my righteousness by looking And the Democrats or the Republicans. I don't think God would be satisfied with a politician's acceptable definition of honesty, do you? We've got to look beyond what we know. Because if you want blessings, you've got to get them from God. That's the only place blessings come from. But God doesn't bless you for wanting to be somewhere. I mean, who in the right mind doesn't want to go to heaven? I mean, you'd have to be in your wrong mind to want to miss heaven, wouldn't you? 
It's not wanting to be there. It's not trying. It's allowing God to make you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sounds like undefiled to me. That's how God wants us to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would take this first little verse here. And help us to to put it into our hearts, Lord. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. We ask that there would not be one here in this room that would not give you the freedom and the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong in their lives. We pray that you would put within us that ability to walk in that way undefiled. And Lord, we would willingly lay aside these things that would drag us out of the way or allow us to bring the smells of our sin before a holy God. Lord, we pray that you would make us sensitive to these things. That you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would use us. Lord, help us that we may be called your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just have joy.